This is Lead with a Question. In the case of human capital, at the end of the day, I want to measure, do people feel like they are appreciated? Now, a lot of people in finance feel better with hard numbers rather than soft numbers. We need to accept more psychological measures, and we need to start with, we want to measure what's important for human capital, not what's easy. Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. When you run a business, one of your jobs is to make wise choices about where you place your bets. This definitely applies in the marketplace with your customers and competitors, but it also applies internally, especially as it relates to how you treat your people. So how do you slice the pie? Maybe you offer pet insurance or more vacation time. What's going to create the conditions for your people to help the company win? Well, today's guest has worked very hard to demystify that puzzle. With the mind of a researcher and the heart of a storyteller, he'll help us consider the question, what do employees care about most? It's a conversation with Dan Ariely on this episode of Lead with a Question. My name is Dan Ariely. I'm the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics. And I have kind of uh, three professional lives. One is I lead a research lab here at Duke called the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Uh, we mostly study uh, financial decision-making, mostly focusing on low to moderate income individuals and health. And we ask behavioral questions. We ask, how do we get people to take on less debt, uh, save for their kids, uh, pay debts better, take medication on time, sleep better, exercise, um, stuff like that. Then I have uh, another life, which I like to try and take technology and make it into a reality. So I participate in a couple of uh, startups. Um, And then I also uh, try to write books or produce other things that give me a bit more of a creative outlet. That's excellent. And and how do you sort of split your time between those three uh, areas of focus? Very hard to to figure out. They all uh, feed into each right. other. Uh, so, so, you know, sometimes um, I do things that feed into the other. Sometimes we find the connections only after the fact. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mix, but it seems to be working for me. So Dan... Yeah. That's great. What what is something that you're currently working on that you're excited about? 
Okay, so I'll tell you three things. So COVID was a very, very interesting period for me. Uh, I decided to do some new things. So I uh, wrote a kid's book that somebody is illustrating now. We'll see how this would uh, come out. Uh, I helped write a pilot TV show for a drama series, uh, loosely based on my life. And the NBC picked it up. So actually, at the end, congratulations. And that's uh, actually incredibly interesting, right? To to create a series that is based on social science. Um, so so we're we're um, writing and thinking and kind of it, it, it's really it's really fun. Um, and then the other thing is that um, early on during COVID, I discovered that I was uh, very hated uh, by a, a group of people who uh, also did not believe in COVID. And um, they had a, a couple of videos on me. And uh, for example, so, you know, you, you all know that my half a beard is because I was injured. Uh, I know it makes me look, so I have, I have scars on the side of my face, but it also makes me devilish looking to, to, to some people. Um, but anyway, they had one video, was a video um, that uh, described how because of my injury, I started hating healthy people. And that's why I joined Bill Gates and the Illuminati in an effort to reduce population as much as much as possible. Um, I used to get death threats almost every day. Now it's subsided a little bit, but they're still going strong. Um, and I um, had an unbelievable journey of, um, in the beginning, of course, you can imagine, you know, death threats. Um, you know, and not that I thought somebody would actually come and, and hurt me, but but it, it's it's a very it's a very troubling thing, right? That somebody says um, I'm creating a guillotine uh, for you, or I'm sharpening my sword. You know, it, it, it's I can't imagine very, that. Like, yeah. It's, it's my, um, then I had a period when I tried to explain myself didn't didn't work well. Um, and then I am ex- the last two years. I'm spending a lot of time on on misinformation and trying to understand this world of, you know, think think for yourself. Do you know anybody that had some dramatic changes during COVID to their set of beliefs and trusts? You know, how did it happen? What what is the psychological process that that takes people that you know share the same beliefs as we do and then. They, they move down down the funnel and and you know maybe they go all the way to the end or they take a few steps but so so I'm actually spending a lot of time trying to understand the psychology of that um, consuming crazy amount of of conspiratory um, information very tough by the way very very tough if you if you go down that world it's a it's a very disturbing world um, anyway. We can go for hours on, on that topic. I don't think it's a topic for the day, but anyway, that's that's what the the, the new adventures of COVID for me and the things I'm occupied with now. I'm curious, like what what is it you're most excited about right now? I saw we saw uh, I shared with Ian that we passing along the uh, the Chat GPT video uh, that you shared about right. Just because this is like this is something people are wrestling with, and of course in the academic community, um, but you know that may be something that's on your mind. Uh, you know. Is it that, or, or what else are you, yeah. you know, curious about? Yeah, right now. So, so you know, two other big projects are on my mind now. Uh, one is uh, thinking about the last chapter of people's lives. 
so think about the time between somebody get a, a terminal diagnosis until end of life. In the Western world, it's slightly longer than five years, right? So on average, it's a really long chapter. And my question is whether we can make this the best chapter of people's lives. Like imagine, imagine somebody dies, somehow we can wake them up for five minutes and we say, hey, if you could choose another chapter of your life, which one would you choose? Can we make them choose that, uh, that chapter? And surprisingly, I think the answer is we can. Now, can we get people to repeat the last month? No, but, but there, there are some things that happen when people get a terminal illness. Of course, it's terrible news. I'm not, not recommending it, but if done correctly, uh, refocusing on goals, thinking about uh, lost relationships, trying to fix things is, is, a, is a really uh, amazing, amazing opportunity, right? Feeling a sense of uh, what have I left, pride, legacy, connection. So, so I'm really thinking about all the ways that we could make this. And, you know, in general, I think about the gaps between where we are and where we could be. Think about this gap. It's very big in the area of health. Right? We could do so much better and we're not. The area of sleep, uh, managing our money, hate, I mean, and so on. In the, in the area of end of life, uh, we have a very big gap, and it's it's under our control. I think it's within our reach to to fix and improve. So, so that's one big uh, big topic. And you know, I just spent Friday in the palliative care department here at Duke. Now, you you think palliative care? No, it's, it's some of these the moments there are are glorious moments of, um, you know, just just uh, the so much so much meaning and satisfaction and so on at the same time. Uh, very sad. And then the other project that I'm spending a lot of time these days, and this is more connected, I think, to our, our discussion today, is that for the last six years, I've been trying to quantify human capital. So imagine there's a company, there's a question of how does the company treat the employees? How do the employees feel about the company? And then I asked the question of how does that system impact the stock market return of the company? And of course, the stock market return is not everything, but as a measurement, it's a good measurement, right? If you say, let's take an organization and let's try and figure out which machines work better than others, right? So if you say, okay, an efficient company is a company that people are happy and, and doing well and so on, and they produce more, that's a stock market return. Let's Let's try and characterize that uh, sense of human human capital. Um, so I've been I've been working very hard trying to understand uh, what is it about human capital that ends up having uh, stock market returns. And and the reason I'm I think it's an important direction is that uh, HR departments are usually filled with very very nice people uh, that are very very low on the totem pole of the company. And they're usually one over compliance. And if you, if you, if you think about the the company, and and they shouldn't be. Right? In in my mind, HR should be um, research and development. I mean, they should be leading. You know, companies spend a ton of money on salaries. Let's improve it. Let's optimize it. Let's let's get people to be happy and and motivated. So, I I think that that creating some quantitative measures of these things would, would help the CFO uh, 
care about this. Um, uh, there's there's um, a Christoph that we that we work with from from Harbor Capital has a, a very nice saying about this. He's saying human capital is an accounting mistake. So, you know, when a company buys a warehouse, it's an investment, and we invest in people, it's a cost. That's a mistake. Companies should capitalize investment in human in human capital. It should be on their balance sheet. Now, of course, it's complex to put it on the balance sheet because different people would come with different quantifications. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Uh, so anyway, so so I, I really think that, by the way, it was always the case that companies had to think very carefully about human capital. Just COVID made it much more clear that this was the case. So we have an opportunity to actually change the way companies think about human capital. And these these principles are are music to uh, a few of our ears. Chris and I both uh, have careers in in HR, uh, and so um, this is something that I think for for those of us in in leadership or or in HR, we've kind of intuitively um, known that obviously there's deep value in the people who are part of the organization, but there's been a historic. I think skepticism, often from other functions in the company, about the importance of treating people well and investing in people, yep. and seeing them as an asset versus a liability. Yeah, we'll come. We'll come back to your intuition in a few minutes. We'll test your intuitions uh, about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I, I do want to say something kind of in defense of companies. And and the notion of in defense of companies are two things. One is very hard to do experiments on HR, right? Imagine that you said, oh, you know, I want to do, to test whatever, free lunch. Let me give free lunch to half the company and not give free lunch. To, and you can't do that. Even if you say, oh, I want to compare bonuses versus increasing pay. I mean, you can't, you can't do that. So, so companies really have no way of learning about what works and what doesn't work because they can't create any variation, right? If you can't create variations, how would you know that it couldn't have been um, uh, much better? So, so that's, um, that's one very, very large limitation. And the second thing is that our intuition about what matters is often misguided, right? And that's, that's where social science comes to, to play, where you say, Oh, so let me improve the quality of my human capital. And you say, what should you do? You say, I don't know, right? Is it, is it a more retirement benefits? Yes, let's add 1% to retirement benefit or let's, let's improve the coffee quality. You know, if you, if you think about it, you know, what's the, what are the secrets of, of human motivation it's actually quite intricate, and it's very hard to learn from from experience about what's what's really wor- uh, working. So, looking across the top uh, one thousand public companies, the largest companies in the US is is a really good data set that helps us understand it to a much better better degree. Yeah, I I love what you've what you've shared, uh, Dan, and it's really exciting. To Rob's point, uh, one of the thoughts that occurred to me was as we're talking about. You know, human capital as as an asset you know on the balance sheet that's like so shifting the mindset right of how we think about these things and you know it's it's a poor reference but it's may have some parallels i'm thinking of you know robert kiyosaki with rich dad poor dad he shows up and he says you know house is not an asset right it's not a it's not a it's not a 
uh, cash generating, you know, uh, element to your, you know, to your life. And that's controversial, right? Uh, this notion of, well, if people, right, are, are categorized today, SGNA, that's highest cost, right? Typically it's looked at as a cost. And what if it's a, what if question that you've posed, which is what if it's, it's actually your, your highest, you know, growth producing asset. And, you know, there's a questions about the quality of that, but what does that also do in the context of, right? We see it today. This is like the, the power struggle between employers and employees, you know, so, what eight, eight, nine, 12 months ago, we were talking about, you know, all the power resided in employees. Now it's like, oh, well, Hey, employers are flexing. <laughs> back to the office, there's layoffs, right? And they're cutting the the most powerful asset that they have in some cases. And you know, it may not be just mindless cutting, but to your point, you know, how how does this approach, how would it change leaders in thinking differently about that knee-jerk reaction to things like layoffs? Yep. So so I think that the moment you start measuring something, you understand the consequences of Right. And if you think about layoffs as a financial uh, only mechanism, uh, then, then it has a simple answer. But think about what if you could quantify, and we didn't study in this, in the study that we're doing on, on, on this, we didn't study layoffs. But if you think about the effect of layoffs on the people who are staying behind, right now, now you're in a different situation. So for example, with COVID, um, there was this idea um, of of laying people off in, in many countries around around the world that companies would lay them off and they would get unemployment and only essential employees would stay employed. Now, think about a company that has, I don't know what, four accountants. And the company says, oh, we only need two. We're shrinking. Let's call two of them essential and we'll keep them and we'll send two home. So first of all, of course, more women were sent home than men. I mean, all kinds of things happen, but how do those people feel? And how do they feel when they're called back to work? You know, you, you just told those people, not like if you take the whole accounting department and say, nobody here is essential, you can explain to yourself. But if you say, you know, Chris, I'm going to keep Rob, he's essential. But you, you can go home. Like, how do you come back? How do you come back from this? So, you know, it's very clear that, that employment has kind of a, a social contract. And the social contract is we don't just fire. We, we don't on a daily basis say, oh, who is worth it? Who is not? Let's get, no, we, we understand there's ups and downs and there's cohesiveness and there's a value to the promise to hire somebody that extends beyond the two-week notice that that we are obliged legally, the moment you start breaking it, you say, what is this organization? What what is uh, what is really going on here? And but but let me go a little bit into the data of what we find and I think I think it's important. So here is the methodology we used. So we took every company and we quantify the, the building blocks of human capital into almost 80 dimensions. Uh, what's a dimension? You can think about coffee quality as a dimension. So imagine we said, okay, we don't have 80 dimensions. Let's just take one, coffee quality. 
And we have data that starts in 2006. You say, let's take the data from 2006 and sort the companies from the company who treats their employee best on coffee quality to the worst. And let's pretend we bought in 2006 the top 20% companies who treat their employees best on coffee quality. And we kept that portfolio. In 2007, we got new data. One company moved up, one company moved down, and we changed the portfolio to always have the 20% best companies who treat the employees best on coffee quality. We have a portfolio until, let's just say, until the beginning of COVID. We'll talk about COVID later. And we do the same thing for quality of chairs and tables and, and every one of the almost 80 dimensions. And now that we have these, these are ridiculous portfolios, right? Nobody would invest this way, but, but you have a portfolio based on one question. It has nothing to do with earnings, nothing, just based on that. How many of those portfolios, almost 80, let's say 80, how many of them beat the S&P 500? Half. Almost all of them. Almost all of them. Wow. Almost all of them. Wow. And what about if you bought the bottom 20% of the companies? How many of them would underperform the S&P? Also, almost all of them. Now, some of them are slightly better than S&P or just the same. Some of them are much better. So now we get to test your intuition. The question is, which one are big deal and which one are not a big deal? So let's start with salary. Is salary a big deal? Do companies that pay employees better have better alpha, better return in the stock market? What, what do you think? So the answer is no. Wow. The answer is no. Um, uh, uh, what about health benefits? Do companies that give better health benefits have higher return on stock performance? I'll say no. <laughs> <laughs> now you're starting to worry, right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm worried. <laughs> yeah. It, the answer is no. Uh, retirement benefits, no. Health benefits, no. And almost anything that had to do with extrinsic motivation, the answer is no. And all the things that matter had to do with intrinsic motivation. Right? So the number one thing was the, the answer to the question, do the employees feel appreciated? Feeling appreciated, unbelievably, unbelievably important. And, and you can't deduce appreciated from salary. Oh, by the way, salary was interesting because absolute salary didn't matter, but perception of fairness of salary mattered a lot. Which, which I think so, is probably tied to appreciation, right? It's a signal right. of how much the organization values your contribution as compared with your peers. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so appreciation was very important. Psychological safety was very important. You know, psychological safety basically means that people feel free to express their opinion. That they're not uh, worried all the time. Uh, by the way, what what is one of the things that companies do to most squash the motivation of their employees? Not not willingly, but what they end up doing a lot during COVID to squash employee motivation. The answer is bureaucracy. If you think about bureaucracy, bureaucracy basically says to employees, we don't trust you. Sure, you can go for lunch, but we want you know 16 forms and a video documentation that you actually went for lunch. We also tell people we don't care about their time. Clearly, we don't care about your time. So we don't trust you. We don't care about your time. 
And we really, really, really don't want you to propose doing anything different. Right? All of those things. Now, you asked me what happened if we start measuring things. If we started measuring bureaucracy the right way, it's not that we say let's do with zero bureaucracy. But let's understand the consequences of bureaucracy. Yes, you add another form. It would take people another five minutes. It would decrease goodwill. It would get people to not want to make uh, to make any change. <clears throat> um, I'll give you an example from my university, um, uh, uh, Duke University, where I where I work, um, is making it difficult for us to hire research assistants from other places around the world. Right, so uh, for our research, it's very useful to hire risk assistants that come from Africa and Europe and, and have different knowledge and understanding and so on. They made it much more complex bureaucratically to do so. Now, it's really good for the university, it's really good for our research, but it's much more time consuming. How are we going to do it? We're doing it less. <laughs> We're doing it less. Maybe maybe we'll stop. Right? It's 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 bureaucracy. So, so what we find is that everything that that is important comes from the 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 pool of intrinsic motivation. And I want to give you kind of two stories to understand intrinsic motivation. The first one is think about what we call goodwill. And goodwill is the gap between the minimum I have to do, not to get fired. And the max I could do if I could, I'm really excited about what I'm doing. Now, imagine all of us give ourselves a score of 100 right now. Okay? In your mind, give yourself 100, don't say this. And now ask the question of how much can you go below 100 and still not lose your job? Like we all recognize it's like quite, quite a long way to go. And then ask yourself, how much do you still have room to improve if you wanted to? And that gives us a sense of, of goodwill. How connected do we feel to the company? It turns out that's, a, that's one very, very important component. What's the fire burning within us that wants us to, to, do, to do well? The, the second thing, I call it utility embracing, and it's a terrible name, but, but here's the idea. Imagine a janitor in a hospital, and the janitor has a job to clean and put soap and all kinds of things like that. One day, the janitor is passing by a bathroom and they hear a patient crying. And they look and the patient fell on the floor. Should they call for help? Absolutely. Is it in their job description? Of course not. One day, the janitor meets a family who is lost in the corridors. Should they help? Of course, yes. Now, if you think about it, we often want people to do things that are not in their job description. We want people to say, okay, this is what the company told me to do. That's my job description. But I'm actually going to raise my head up, look around and say, where else can I help? People are basically saying, I understand better what the company really wants me to do than my job description is. My job description is a bad, it's a description of what I need to do on average, but it's not a, a description of everything that I have to do. And yes, I'm only rewarded based on that and so on, but the reality is that the company really wants me to do all kinds of other things. Do people do that? Right. Answer is, is the more of the company, like it's kind of funny to think about it, right? That we want people to do what's not in their job description. 
to, to go beyond beyond that. So that these are the two important things. That's a consequence of control and bureaucracy, right? People will right. stop acting independently to do the right thing in, in those That's moments, right. right? It's it's also, by the way, a consequence of understanding the organization. You know, in this big debate about working from home, working from, from the office, and if you just stick to your job description and you stay at home uh, over, over Zoom or whatever platform you use, the, the idea that you would be able to look around and, and understand where your effort or bits needed are, are dropping because you don't know what else is going on. You just know, you know, you have just your <laughs> little window to the world. Now, there are two other topics I want to, I want to bring up. One is kind of trivial. Uh, what do you think happened? Oh, by the way, if I if I take all the things that I told you I mentioned about 80 dimensions, if I reduce it to the ones that matter and I create an investment strategy uh, uh, based on that, it ends up being a very good investment strategy. Uh, beats the S&P uh, quite dramatically and systematically from 2006 uh, and on. So, so this company called Harbor Capital created uh, two ETFs uh, with those. And if, if you want, you can uh, look for the, the, They're called Happy with a y, AJPI and ABPY. And you can both see the companies that score well. And you can also invest in, in, in doing so. Of course, it's just the beginning, right? We need to do, we need to do more of that. And what do you think happened during COVID? Uh, during COVID, intrinsic motivation became more important. Why? Think about the kid in seventh grade. If the kid is in class, the teacher says, sit straight, don't talk to Johnny, <laughs> put your phone down. The kid is over Zoom, you know, they can turn the teacher off, right? When the moment people start working from work, now we're not exactly kids, but we're also not very different. When, when people work remotely, you know, the, the, the role of intrinsic motivation become, become higher. Okay, and now we're getting to another uh, important point, and it will test your intuition. There's an index that has been running for a few years called the Xi Index. And the Xi Index uh, measures the percentage of women at the board level and top management. In the same way that I described coffee, they take all the companies, they sort them from the company as the highest percentage of women in board and to the company that have the lowest. And they invest only in the companies who are very high in that percentage. How well do you think this index does financially? It does very well, well, just like the S&P, slightly below, much below. What do you think? Maybe do this, like much better, slightly better, the same, slightly worse, much worse. The same... Uh, Chris, much better, much better. Okay, so it does worse. It does worse. It loses money almost every year. I think one year it didn't, but um, and so on. Now, why is that? Is it because it's not a good idea to treat women well? Of course not. It's because counting is not a good way to measure human capital. So I have data from how people within the company think, how they feel. So I, for each company, I told you I create a human capital index, like how do they think about coffee and shares and so on. 
I also created a delta measure comparing men to women. Some companies, the men feel much better than women. They feel they are more fairly pay paid and more fairly promotion and so on, and some women are. But some companies, there's no, not the difference. So I saw the companies from the company who has the most feeling of equality, the company that have the lowest, and my index beat the S&P 500 all the time. Now, what's the problem with the Xi index? The problem is that it's a ridiculous measure if you think about it for five minutes. Of course, I didn't give you five minutes to think about it. I just you know, tackled your initial intuition. First of all, the number of women doesn't mean that women feel treated equally. These are two separate concepts. Uh, we have professions like teaching that the vast majority are women and they're all treated badly. Right? This is not, uh, it doesn't mean, oh, if we only had another woman, they would all feel wonderful. No, they don't. And the second thing is that uh, getting women at the top to feel well doesn't mean it penetrates through the rest of the organization. It's a very strong assumption. So, so what the She Index did, uh, and you know, I, I don't think they, they knew, I just think those were finance people that thought like finance people do without thinking social science. And they measured what's easy rather than what's important, right? And, and if you look at, the, at life, we do it a lot, right? It's not that it's, it's unique. But in the case of human capital, at the end of the day, I want to measure, do people feel like they are appreciated? Do people feel like they're being paid fairly? And, and if I measured number of women, it, it, just, it just doesn't translate into any of those things. Now, a lot of people in finance feel better with hard numbers rather than soft numbers. So I want the objective numbers rather than how people feel on the seven-point scale. But, you know, if, if I wanted to know how much pain you have, like I don't have a better way than just asking you how much pain are you feeling. And the amount of nerve conductivity is not going to tell me. Uh, much about that. So, so I think we need to accept more psychological measures and we need to start with we want to measure what's important for human capital, not what's easy. That's great, Dan. I think what you're speaking to is a lot of companies have gone the route of the optics of putting numbers and yeah. chairs to, to meet the need it's almost like a checkbox system where they're like, hey, we're treating women fairly. Look, we have these this number of yeah. board seats available to them. But what you're getting at is the intrinsic side, which is so much harder to measure. I think companies are ill-equipped at doing this is even though there may be women in those positions, they may not even feel good about their position or their standing in the company or their contributions. And, and yeah. it it, it, it could trickle down negatively as well if, if those feelings are not met. So that, that's very yeah, important so, work you're doing. So you're right on two though. So one, one point, we have some data showing that if we take a company who is not doing well from a human capital perspective as far as women are concerned, and they appoint somebody to the board, a very prominent woman to the board, motivation in the company actually goes down. Why? Because unless they really fix the culture, and it takes a long time to fix the culture, the women in the company say, oh, clearly they don't really care. <laughs> All they do is window dressing. They do something that is good for the outside, but they're not really dealing with the real, with the real problem and it, and it backfires. 
The second thing is, look, we have this legalistic mindset in so much of the things we're doing. And we're trying to take a check-the-box approach. I think this was the big mistake of ESG. I think, um, now imagine, imagine your relationship with your significant other. And imagine that they say, here's the checkbox of how to get to have a good relationship. You know, you have to wash the dishes this amount of time and sex this this uh, frequency and these positions and you know <laughs> and like you know, every every couple finds their own magic and their own way of, of being and, and the advantage and the disadvantage and, and we're not the same. We're not the same and we shouldn't be the same and so on. The same thing is true about companies. Each company is beautiful in different ways and ugly in different ways. And you know, when I uh, I run a small research center where you know thirty some people, uh, but when people come, even if I I had a job to do X like to work on health, we had one guy who came to work on health, and it turns out that his parents went bankrupt when he was young, and he was very very interested in in bankruptcy and poverty and so on. I shifted to a team that didn't need anybody, but you know, I, I had I, he had a lot to contribute to that. You know, at the end of the day, companies is the sum of the people that are that are working there, and to basically reduce everything like this. This is an illness of society. This reducing everything to a check the box approach. It is. It takes the heart and soul out of everything. Now, you know, at the end of the day. We give, we give a checkbox, like there's a rating agency and they give the checkbox approach and people do the check and it just makes things worse because the checkbox are in most cases not relevant and now we're back to bureaucracy. Now we're saying, okay, so, so I guess we have to say thank you to everybody on Monday morning when we come to the office and you're up, oh, it's the time for the, for the bi-monthly bi flower. Let's... <laughs> Uh, let's send that. And of course, it gets much worse. It gets much worse. But, the, you know, when things are, are done in a non-genuine way, first of all, they don't allow companies to flourish. They don't really allow companies to flourish. And, and then when it's non-genuine, it doesn't really create a big difference. So I, I don't know what to do about this check-the-box approach. I think it's just it's just terrible. It's just terrible. And And, you know, and, and people know it. There was a big consulting company that called me a little while ago. And they said, look, we found out that all the consultants are cheating on the ethics module. So I said, how, how does the ethics model work? And they said, oh, you know, we send them this link and we say they have a week to do it. I say, do you give them time to do it? Do you put it on their calendar? Do you say, here's a discussion before and after? No, I said, no, we just put it on top of their work. I said, what are you telling them? You're telling them this is not an important thing. Treat this as a bureaucracy. Then you'll be surprised that, that nobody actually read and they say, okay, if it's a bureaucracy and all I need to do is to check the box, I can cheat. Here are the, here are the answers to, to everybody else. In fact, I think that the people who cheated, I didn't do the survey, but I think the people who cheated on that ethics module thought they were doing what the company wanted them to do. Which is okay. The company has to check the box, and they're telling us to check the box. But but now you can say, does it end there? Or do these people say we live in a company that has a lot of check the box approach, and other things they tell me to do are also just check the box approach? Dan, are there any 
bright spots that you've found in in your research related to um, you know either either organizations that have seemed to have figured some of this out or um, or merely research that is very encouraging to you? So, so look, um, what happened to Microsoft a few years ago with the change of the CEO was amazing, right? There was a CEO that came from operation management that thought about people like, you know, tell people to do this and they'll do this and then all oh, let's change and so on to, to somebody who thought about human capital in a very, very clear, clear way. And that had tremendous change uh, for the good. Uh, but but the good examples are are very are very small are very are very few they're very few and you know COVID you tell me what your experience is but from what I hear COVID uh, has increased bureaucracy dramatically uh, basically lots of things moved online um, you know again I'll, I'll give you an example for me so so I I have disability my hand is is very bad very hard for me to move it I had a, a period with tremendous pain and uh, there was a report I was supposed to submit and I asked for a delay in, in the report I had to submit and and they <laughs> they told me that for delays uh, there's a form <laughs> to, for for accommodation there's a form. And um, so first of all, filling forms is difficult for me, <laughs> so, but, but I filled the form and there was a procedure and so on. And it took four months to, to, to get to me, to get to that. But the, and the thing is that because of COVID, I don't even know who is the person in charge, right? We used to, we used to know people. We used to be able to, uh, to, to connect with people. Now it's all forms and forms are really efficient for the average. But how many of the things we need are the average? And, and you know what what is the what is the process? So I think I think COVID has um, you know when when we think about the the workplace, I think people don't understand. <clears throat> you know I've uh, if if I joined Duke fifteen years ago, and I still remember. When we started dating, right, 15 years ago when I came up, somebody who joins now is a very different person, right? If you join a company during COVID or after COVID, when there's so many procedures and paperwork and so on and everything is bureaucratic and there's no friendly face uh, to take you around, like, you know, we say, oh, these young people. No, companies have changed too. Companies have changed a lot. And in the old geezers, we, we had a, a very different first impression. That is carried with us, but but the new new people are uh, they will have a good first date. And um, let, let me switch to, to just something else. Um, this would sound like a strange story, but um, when I was in hospital for the first almost four months, I was fed by a tube. So I had a tube through my nose going into my stomach. Uh, Thirty eggs a day, raw of course, and uh, seven thousand calories a day to try and help the body build back back tissue. And by the way, even with that, I kept on losing weight. Um, and uh, almost four months into it, they come and tell me the day after tomorrow, we'll take the tube out and I'll be able to start eating by myself. And what do you think was my reaction? I thought it was a terrible idea. I begged them to keep the tube in. 
And I thought, who needs to eat? Like, who wants to chew? What's, what's the point? I said, I discovered the future. One day in the future, people won't stop with this nonsense activity. You know, people eat, eat, eat all the time, multiple times a day. They don't see it. But you stop eating for four months, you realize that's a terrible waste of time. Like, very, very inefficient, very, very, very uh, dull way to... Like, if you designed humanity from scratch, you would not say, let's spend so much of our time preparing and, and eating food. Just, just... I didn't think anybody would want to walk around with the tube, but maybe pills or something very efficient. Anyway, of course, I was the patient, so I didn't have much rights, and they took the tube out, and I started eating. And of course, what happened was that I remembered that food really tastes good. <laughs> now, during that tube period, it's not that I didn't remember that food has taste, but after almost four months, I sort of forgot that the joy of eating. Since then, you could, if you can't see my stomach, since then, I, I remember. But I think the same thing is true. The reason I'm saying it, I think it's a, it's an interesting analogy for work from home. When we think about work from home, we think about it in terms of efficiency, transportation, distance from coffee to chair, you know, all kinds of things like that. You know, here's here's an efficiency view. But what are we leaving out? And I think we're leaving out lots of the things that are very hard to quantify, like the taste of food. How do you quantify the synchronicity? Like if you think about our discussions, we barely finished each other's sentences. If we were in the same room, like we're all on the same wave, right? We would have finished each other's sentences uh, much, uh, much more. And I don't know when you're smiling because real smile comes from the little wrinkles by the eyes. I, I, I look at your face. You, you're nodding from time to time. It's very helpful, but but I really don't don't get the same the same reaction and the same energy. And you know, there are a million things that we don't. I don't even know all the things that are missing from this interaction. But but the thing with the with this example, it also misses something very important. In the food case. Uh, one day eating food reminds you of the taste. Going back to work, one day of going back to the office is not a good reminder. Because after deteriorating relationships for two years, it's not as if you come back with it up. No, it might take two years to to get back the relationship. You know, so so do we like the gap that we have created by the loss of socialization, carried understand, and so on, that will take a long term to build. And I think in this way, companies don't understand what is return to work. Companies say, oh, we're just going back to work. No, no, no. We're not back at work. It would take a long time. Uh, it takes uh, time and back. space, right? Yeah. And companies should think about what they can do to accelerate that. Right. So it's not that you have to wait two years, right? You might be able to accelerate uh, that process, but you have to understand what we have lost to appreciate and say, okay, how do we how do we rebuild it? And, and the thing about intuition, you know, lots of social science is about people having bad intuitions. Um, we have good intuitions about efficiency. We don't get have good intuitions about like. You know, imagine I, I say, what makes you love your significant other? You will say all kinds of things. 
they will be completely disconnected from reality. Like, for example, smell ends up being incredibly important in romantic attraction. Right? You would not say, oh, I chose my <laughs> my significant other and some of my friends. By the way, we do. We yeah, no one talks friends. about that. No one talks about that's that. Right. Yeah. That's right. So, so you know, th- there's so much that we, that we like we would say, oh, they're intelligent. They have this sense of humor. I mean, yes, we, we do find a story uh, about what it is, but what truly gets us to to be a good fit with them is it's a it's a very non tangible set of qualities that we're not yet able to quantify certainly not individually not even scientifically uh, yet so so you know work is this magical thing that that humanity gets to to commingle with other people and co-create and do all kinds of all kinds of magical things and we're not, we don't know how to quantify it, but we can quantify commute. So what do we do? We end up quantifying commute and coffee quality rather than, uh, than the things that are important. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, you're our type of warrior, Dan. Uh, we, we love what you shared. And I think a lot of people can benefit from this. And part of it being it questioning some of these assumptions, right. That have been in place for a long time, right. Uh, leaders have operated with this uh, uh, kind of data or a financial science mode for a long time. And it's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air to hear, you know, you challenging this and, and going back to your question too, of how, how can people accelerate this? How can they accelerate into the future of culture that is co-creative, it's collaborative, and it, it, it taps into this creative propensity that people have. And by the way, that chat GPT is things like that are disrupting in the sense of, um, you know, some of those just standard automated jobs are kind of shifting and going to be going away anyway. So how do people lean into this future in this very personal way that, you know, you talked a lot about how people feel and we ask ourselves that question and, and leaders, we feel like that's, that's the future, but how can people accelerate? How can leaders do that? Yeah. So, so, you know, th- think about a, a normal distribution. You have some people who are not producing that much and not that creative and, you know, you move down and there's like a normal distribution. Most people are in the average, some people is. And I think that the question is like technology, chat, GPT, uh, AI will take away some of those jobs that don't need creativity and so on. And the question is, how do we increase the tail on the, on the super creative part? And, and there are basically one component is the individual motivation component, right? It's, it's the people that you hired. And now the question is, do you get them to have a very high level of motivation, intrinsic, intrinsic motivation, goodwill? And do you get them to look around and say, where can I contribute? That's that part. And the second part is, what kind of tools do we give them? What kind of tools do we give them? And, and our social part is part of the tools. So... You know, if, if, if you take somebody and you say, go and be creative alone in the kitchen in your home. No, but if they get to discuss and understand and so on, uh, try to explain. I mean, the, if you look at the process of creativity, um, somebody tried, ch- somebody uh, said it's, a, it's an NP-complete process. Like we don't have a, an algorithm for creativity. 
And creativity is just this amazing thing. I see a hole here. Let me let me look. Let me look at that. And um, you know, science is interesting. Like people have an insight, and then they go and check whether it's correct. They're checking it's correct. It's a very rigorous process. They're saying, "I have an insight. Where does it come from?" Like you know, in in, in my case, I told you a personal experience about being fed. Here's a now. You know, th- then you go ahead and test it in a very rigorous way. But but the intuition comes from all kinds of places. I think organizations will have to be more creative. The, the value would come from more creativity. I think individuals need to, to move to that creativity. So, you know, the, the, in all companies, it's the most productive people who push the company the most forward. But but the, the jobs that are repetitive will will go down and the real struggle will be to say how do we get more of the of that of that far far tail it's about getting people who are truly motivated and buying in and then getting people to to feed on everything good in the organization This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Dan Ariely for being with us today. His forthcoming book, Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things?, is available for pre-order now. Dan's website is danarielli.com. There you can find info about all his books, helpful videos, cartoons, and Dan's research group, the Center for Advanced Hindsight. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of BraveCore LLC. Thanks for being with us.